Hello and welcome to I Must Break, this podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 1991 and taking a look at the sixth film in Lundgren's filmography, Cover Up. In this dramatic political thriller, Lundgren plays Mike Anderson, an American journalist in Israel investigating the bombing of a U.S. naval base. Yet as the title for the film gives away, this is no ordinary story. And the deeper Mike digs for the truth, the more in danger Mike finds himself. Joining me to discuss this film today is my buddy Marcus Jones of the website Crushed Celluloid and the host of the Jean-Pod Van Damme podcast, the podcast dedicated to the analysis of Jean-Claude Van Damme's career. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today, man. Sean, buddy, thank you so much for having me. I, I actually, like I said, I've kind of been catching up on your show. Uh, I listened to about two episodes today. Um, two of the most recent ones anyway, and I'm super proud of you for putting this together, and it's been really entertaining so far. No, it's been a lot of fun, and I've said it before, but, um, you know, when you're a fan of, of you know, of someone's career and you're, you've been following it, you know, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's fun watching it through that lens, but when you're going, like, a, like you, as, as you've seen, I've been going in chronological order, and so I've really been, you know, I've seen all these films before numerous times, but watching them in this certain order has really been a treat because I've really been able to appreciate Lundgren on a whole other level than I ever did before and I'm getting to see him grow and try new things as as an actor which has just been the absolute absolute treat to do. Well yeah, cuz usually, you know, you watch a random film but you don't really watch it in order. You don't really see like what he was going through in his career. Um, but you, you've done very well so far. You, you've got a, a director interview so far. I really like uh, the the guy. Uh, is it Jeremy um, that you've had on like twice? The, that's kind of the Lundgren scholar. Yeah, J- Jeremy Damasu. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, he he's wonderful. Oh yeah, no, he he knows his stuff, man. So <laughs> yeah, he. And anytime I have a question regarding regarding Dolph or uh, you know any any films that he either has in production or a film that he has completed or anything. I mean, he knows his stuff. I mean, I like to think that I've followed his career as well, but um, Jeremy has, he literally wrote his graduate thesis on the man. So um, he's, he's, he knows his shit. And so. he wrote a book about the making of the Punisher, which I really want to read. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. It's um, I, I guess 2018 is when it's scheduled to be released here in the U S but um, yeah, no, that was a great episode because that really allowed um, both of us to kind of plug our various projects, but um, yeah, no, it, I'm looking forward to that coming to the to the United States because you know what's funny about The Punisher is, you know, for years that film was just maligned by fans and by critics and everything, and it seems like now within the past few years it's finally started to get this appreciation, and I think even the fans have started to turn around on it and say. You know, I think that was probably the best adaptation of The Punisher, so... Well, that's how I've always felt of it. Like, honestly, other than, uh, I guess I'll 
can talk a little bit about my experience with Lundgren, because obviously not nearly what, what you have, but, I mean, of course, like, Rocky Four is kind of the first time I saw him, just because I saw those movies as a kid, but honestly, the first, like, Lundgren movie that I, I probably saw was The Punisher, which I saw as a young teenager, and I loved it, and I have a soft spot for all of the Punisher movies in different ways, but yeah, that one's probably my favorite adaptation of it. No, most definitely, most definitely. And, you know, we're discussing this film today, cover-up. Um, this was the sixth film that Lundgren ever did in his career, and it's it's really interesting for, for a lot of reasons. Um, I will put it out there right now. It's probably not my favorite of, you know, all of Lundgren's filmography. However, it's um, one of the, well, it's the second time that we really got to see him play a regular guy. And in this particular film, I have it written down, I mean, What's interesting about this is, yeah, he is, you know, he's playing the lead, but this role could have been played by Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Kurt Russell, and the fact that it is Dolph Lundgren who had come off of films like He-Man and The Punisher and I Come in Peace, you know, where he's playing, uh, not so much I Come in Peace, but these other films where he's playing these larger-than-life characters, and this one he's just playing a, you know, a simple journalist. So it really shows that he's always been... He's always been an actor who, even even early in the career, when he was being typecast as these um, as just a big, you know, muscle bound, you know, uh, Stallone knockoff or whatever, you know, you can really see that he was he was trying things and he wanted to be um, respected as an actor. Yeah, uh, and and I see that in this, and of course, uh, you know, I host that Van Damme show, uh, so something that I noticed right off the bat. Uh, because I, I've seen a, a decent amount of his films. I know he's been in like 80-something films. I've probably seen about 15 of those. Um, but something I noticed that I really appreciated about this movie is that, you know, Lundgren's a big guy. Like, he's an imposing figure. He's a martial artist. He, he knows what he's doing. It, if this were like a Van Damme film, guess what? This mild-mannered reporter that was uh, m- maybe in the Marines at one point, he would have known martial arts. Just just because, oh, he was in the Marines, so he knows martial arts. They don't do that here. He he never once holds a gun. He never, like, does any martial arts moves or anything. He kind of fights with brute force a little bit, but he's not that great at it. Like, he just plays a character. They don't just plug in his abilities as they do in most Van Damme movies. And I appreciate that. No. Yeah, and it's funny because um, Jeremy, you know, he brought that up as well with me in discussing this, was that, yeah, uh, he never picks up a firearm once in this film, which I think is, you know, one of the, I mean, there's a, there's quite a few things about this film that kind of make it stand out among all the other films in this filmography, but that alone, I think, is, is pretty commendable, and it's pretty interesting um, when, when you look at the piece as a whole, you know? Well, yeah, because he could have just been, like, the, the action star in this movie. He could have been like, oh, no, they're messing with my people, pick up guns, start shooting people left and right. But, no, he kills, what, three people in this movie total, uh, two of which are the main bad guys, more or less, and one is just an assassin. But even those are, like, desperate times where he just, like, is fighting for his life and kills someone kind of thing. He's not a macho action star. Like, he is a reporter. He spends most of this movie doing investigating, like, trying to figure out the pieces, and it's actually a really good thriller in that way. It's a little light on the action and maybe could have used a bit more, but that maybe would have just turned it into, like, you know, a Dolph Lundgren action movie as opposed to, like, more of a, a, a spy thriller in a way or, like, a investigative journalist thriller. Well, you know, and, um, yeah, we're, we're kind of going a little bit ahead here, but, you know, that that is one of the things, um, one of the, the slight things about the film that I think hurts it is that it is still trying to keep one foot in the action door, and I think a lot of that is because they realize, okay, hey, we have Dolph Lundgren here, 
as the lead character, as the lead actor, the lead character, we need to, you know, pump this up and put a little bit more action in here. And it's those elements in the film that, while they are cool, kind of make it uh, feel a little disjointed in, in some areas, in my opinion. Yeah, I could see that, because you mentioned, like, yeah, this could have been played by, like, a Michael Douglas or a Harrison Ford or something. That's very true. Any one of them could have done this. But, yeah, maybe they did try to toss in a little bit more of, like, the, you know, 80s, 90s action into this because of Dolph. Uh, And, like, some of that is fun, but it's just, yeah, it's one foot in the door. Like, they should have either, like, gone full-on kind of silly action movie or taken it a bit more seriously and not just, you know, shove stuff in. Because I I like this movie quite a bit, actually. Uh, It's not perfect. It's a little uneven. But, like, I had only seen this once before, and rewatching it, I enjoyed it a lot more the second time around, to be honest. Well, and that that's the big reason why I wanted you on this for this episode, because I remember when I was talking to you about starting this project up, I remember you said that you had watched him in cover-up recently, and you really enjoyed it. And the interesting thing about cover-up is the fact that um, this is one of his films, I would say, that is essentially, pardon the pun, excuse me, but is covered up in a sense, because you really <laughs> don't hear, you really don't hear too much about this film. I mean, let's face it, um, you know, Dolph throughout his career is known for, you know, for a handful of roles, and they are great roles. But what I always thought was fascinating, in a sense, about Cover Up is this was released during his, quote-unquote, golden era, in a sense. And what I mean by golden era is this was released during his era of his most memorable films, okay? If if you think about it, even to this day, while he is still acting, he is still putting out, you know, um, know, dozens of movies... um, if, if you look at his most popular roles, arguably they came out around this time. He went from Rocky IV to He-Man to The Punisher. Uh, he had Red Scorpion, which he still is known for to this day. And then he has I Come in Peace, which was the last episode. And so then he did this little film um, this little film cover-up in between Dark Angel or I Come in Peace, however you want to refer to that one. And then after cover-up, he did Showdown Little Tokyo, which is another one of his more popular films, yet no one ever talks about cover-up at all. And I almost kind of wonder, I have a slight theory, but I almost kind of wonder if maybe he here he was trying something new, trying a you know a real acting piece rather than a full-on action movie. It didn't click, it didn't stick with, with audiences for you know whatever reason. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to go back to doing a total macho guys movie, which is what he did next, which was Showdown a Little Tokyo. I, I could see that. And then even after that, Universal Soldier, I think, was the next one after yeah. that. Uh, yeah. But, I, I mean, I, it might be part of that. I don't know how much that was a, constant, a conscious choice on his part, because that's probably the majority of roles he's offered are those kind of roles. This is probably like a diamond in the rough where he's like, oh, I could like play a role it's not just like they're not just using my bulking size to make me this larger than life character like i get to play a role to where i'm just a dude so that's probably just more rare to come along to him at this point well and i guess this was a role that he was really proud of that he was really excited for because he really got to demonstrate his you know his acting chops and and i'll go ahead and say it especially watching this again recently He's doing a fine job. I mean, he gets unfairly, um, especially in these early years, he's always gotten a little, you know, fairly typecast and, and, and stereotyped as being just this big, dumb, lumbering guy. But in this particular film, he is he is delivering, and he is doing he is doing a fine job. I mean, I, 
I, I'm not going to say that, um, you know, I think he's doing better than a lot of other actors. Like we, like we said, this could have been played by Michael Douglas or Harrison Ford, and I think the role, the movie still would have come out okay. But you've got to give him credit, you know, for trying this. Because let's face it, he was trying to rise around this time. Dolph was trying to rise to the ranks of, you know, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And if you think about it, Arnold and Sly, they were not taking on roles like this around this time. Well, no, Stallone especially, like, he he was in his weird experimental phase where he was doing stuff like Oscar and stuff, or my mom will shoot and stuff, and even, even Arnold as well, he was doing stuff like Kindergarten Cop around this time, like, they, they were both kind of getting more into, like, action comedies and stuff, which I guess was kind of leaving more, like, these uh, kind of lower-tier, like, B kind of action thrillers for, like, the new up-and-comers, like the, the Lundgrens and the Van Dams and things like that. Well, and you know, I and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there. I kind of think, in a lot of ways, by Dolph taking on this role that he did back in 1990, 91, if he was maybe a little ahead of the curve, if he is, you know, a little ahead of its time in a way, because just until recently, if you look at you know Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arnold Schwarzenegger's been back acting lately, um, and he's been trying his hand at drama, but his his dramatic turns that he's done recently. He didn't really even start doing full-on dramas until the past couple of years. He did Maggie, and then he followed that with Aftermath. I don't know if you've seen any of those two films, but those are Arnold trying. I mean, he doesn't pick up a gun at all in any of those films, and he is really um, emoting and channeling um, a real dramatic side. And he is doing a great job, to, I'll give Arnold credit, but how many years was Arnold in the business before he finally you know, attempted something like this? And then you have Dolph, his sixth movie in, and he's and he's playing a journalist, a reporter. I got to give the guy credit for that. Oh yeah, and especially like listening to her first few episodes because I I've seen the majority of his early work. Uh, I think Red Scorpion is one that that I've missed out on. Uh, but I've seen like uh, I've come in peace and uh, you know as of course seen the Punisher and things like that. So yeah, seeing him do that so early on because even you know other action stars, if you look at their first few movies, like they're pretty much just plugged in because they have the muscles. Or you know if you're a Stallone, it's more like you write a movie. And, you know, then you can kind of be plugged in there. Uh, but, yeah, even, like, with Van Damme, like, kind of doing these martial arts tournament movies for the first little bit. Like, just kind of playing to their strengths. And Dolph is immediately out of the gate trying to widen his range. He's trying to not just have movies play to his strengths. He's trying to build up what his strengths can be. And I, I respect that a lot. Oh, most definitely. You know, and like like I said earlier, this this role, him taking on this role, and if you look at this film... It, it shows, you know, extremely well that, you know, here is a guy who, yeah, he does he does have the muscles and he <laughs> and he did uh, play He-Man and he did, you know, do Red Scorpion and things of that nature. But he always had that desire to branch out and try new things, you know. And even to this day, um, you know, I love Van Damme as well, like you do, but I don't think we would ever see Van Damme taking on a role as a as a American journalist traveling to Israel. You know what I mean? I, I just that's not something in Van Damme's wheelhouse that I think he would even want to attempt. But the fact that Dolph oh, yeah, did, no, he, he definitely can't do the accent like Dolph can. No, well, Dolph is killing it with this American accent. By the way, like he he just he can do it, but. And, yeah, I, I do appreciate that he can do that. Um, and I don't know, a lot of, when I read about Dolph's earlier work, uh, like people writing about it, a lot of people use the word, like, monosyllabic and stuff like that. And he's really not. Like, even this early on, like, he, he's maybe a little lacking in 
charm, like a little bit in charisma. Like that's something that Van Damme kind of had on him a little bit. He is just kind of naturally charming, but Dolph like kind of can inhabit a role better, and like he might n not be quite as charming. He definitely doesn't throw out a whole lot of smiles or anything like that, but he comes off like as as a smart guy. He comes off as someone that knows the score and is figuring shit out. No, exactly, exactly. And, you know, he plays this role of Mike Anderson, like we established. He is this American journalist sent into Israel to cover a story on an attack on a U.S. naval base. And they are, all the fingers, they're pointing, uh, you know, the, the culprit for, for bombing the base is this um, uh, terrorist organization by, by the name of Black, Oct Black October. Excuse me. Um, I'm curious, what did you... Regarding the, the whole general plot of this thing, did it throw you by for any surprises or anything like that, or you know, did you pretty much see everything coming? Uh, there, there was one surprise, uh, and I don't know how much you okay. want to get into it or if you kind of want to go along with the story, but there are certain things that were pretty obvious. Um, I, I will say uh, the 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 front twist at the end like that surprised me but as far as like uh the love interest things like that there again i don't know if you just want me to come out and say it or if you want to save it for the plot um but basically maybe we'll save it okay <laughs> maybe we'll save it just because that is a turn but um but yeah that that's one of the things it's it's trying so hard to be this this serious um you know thriller with these few twists thrown in here and there and that's one of the things, I mean, again, there's a lot of cool things uh, about this film that, that I really appreciate, but there's also a few things that I kind of wonder if maybe um, the production values didn't allow them to do as much as maybe the story wanted to do. But there are certain individuals, I mean, like you said, the love interest, I, maybe it's her acting, maybe it's the way she's playing the role, I don't know. Um, the actress's name is Lisa Berkeley, but I could tell... That's, that was the most obvious. Yeah, I could tell right away. I was like, dude, she's going to turn on him. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's yeah. quite obvious. But um, before we fully get into the plot and all the various characters, the other thing I want to throw out there that I almost wonder if maybe this was um, this was put in at the 11th hour once they realized they had Lundgren on hand. But a um, couple things about him. He is an ex-Marine. And I feel like by, him, by making him an ex-Marine, that makes him getting into those fight sequences there's only a few but him getting involved in the action and the fight sequences uh it, it's a it's a trope that i feel like a lot of these movies do oh he's ex-marine he's ex-cia he is ex-special forces whatever it almost kind of gives the character and the writers an easy out for oh that's that's how he can handle himself in <laughs> you know in battle or whatever it may be a, a little bit, but I feel like they don't exploit that in this movie, because I feel like him being an ex-Marine, that's used just as much to justify him knowing these characters, and him getting access to the things he does, like how, you know, he's a reporter, so he's part of the press conference, but then he gets to go behind closed doors and, you know, talk to uh, Louis Gossett Jr. as Jackson, to talk to his buddy, his old war buddy Coop, uh, you know, to talk to people he knows because he was part of that. He, you know, he can talk to uh, Marines in a bar and, like, get information from them because he used to be one too. He can gain their trust. I feel like it's used just as much for that because even in his fight scenes, it's not like, oh, he was the most decorated Marine and he knows all the moves or anything like that because even in his fight scenes in this movie, he's kind of clumsy. Like, he's not a good fighter in this movie. He just, like... 
tries when he has to, and he just happens to be a big dude that can, like, kind of handle himself a little bit. And he does get his ass kicked. I mean, well, let's face it, he does. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, he does. Um, but <laughs> the other thing that I had to laugh at is, okay, you have you have an actor like Dolph Lundgren, you know, in this film, playing this journalist. Um, they, they definitely throw in the shirtless scene of Dolph that is completely unnecessary to the plot, but it does let you know that when you have someone like Dolph on hand, the audience needs to know it's Dolph. So... <laughs> Well, yeah, they have that that one scene where he's just like shirtless in a towel, like glistening because he got out of a shower, and he's even standing in like a pose to make all of his muscles pop. Oh, in I know. Such a way, it's kind of great, but I'm okay with that scene. Like that, that was totally fine by me. There's just one other scene that I think this movie could have done without entirely. Okay, uh, do you want to get to that, or do you want to do that uh, now, or we, we can get to that eventually? But I'll just say it's the sex scene. Okay, okay, yeah, I was going to point that out as well. But, um, okay, so I'm curious. Like I said, you you came to me saying, hey, dude, I watched this film cover-up. And so I'm curious, what is your experience with the film? Before we fully, you know, get into the, the plot machinations and all that, um, what is your experience with the film? How did you come upon it? Well, that's the thing. You mentioned, uh, you know, but this, I, pun intended on my end, this movie's kind of covered up a little bit. It's, it's not really a well-known, even though it's from his earlier kind of golden period, like you said. Um, and I didn't know about this movie until maybe a year ago. And again, it's not like I just grew up with this or anything like that, uh, which also, like, even Masters of the Universe, I didn't see till I was in my 20s, because uh, I'm a little bit younger than you, I think. I didn't grow up with He-Man. Uh, I wasn't kind of around when it came out in theaters or anything. I discovered it when I was just watching any canon movie I could get my hands on because I was on, on my canon binge. Um, but this one I just happened to come across because uh, the, the store Hastings uh, went out of business all over. Um, and so, of course, uh, like, the, like the ridiculous person I am, I spent many a week leading up to their closing just going through everything they had in the store, all their DVDs, everything, and just scooping up anything I could. And I, of course, was a fan of The Punisher since I was a teenager, and I was like, what? A, an early 90s Dolph Lundgren movie reteamed with Louis Gossett Jr. for $3? Yes, I will buy that. Uh, and then, yeah, so I just kind of had it for a while, and I, I just didn't watch it right away. It took me a little while to watch it. And I think it was around the time that uh, I first kind of met you, uh, and you came onto my show, and we talked and stuff, and you told me about your love of Lunger and how you wanted to start a podcast, and I think that kind of pushed me to like, oh yeah, I got this Lunger movie sitting around that I haven't watched yet. And so I finally watched it, and I was just like, oh, because again, I had only seen certain, like 15 of his films total, uh, three of those being Universal Soldier movies, two of them being Expendables movies, so kind of out of the, the main known ones, and a few of of the more outliers or the more ones you have to dive in deeper for like I, I hadn't watched too many so this one was just a pleasant surprise because it was different than any other longer movie I had seen him in before um, and then like I said watching it again uh, for the show uh, yeah it, it it impressed me because it's it still like even though I've seen a few more of his films since then uh, initially it it surprised me because it's still very different than just about any other movie I've seen him in well, yeah, everything you stated, I agree with completely. Um, I saw this film, I didn't even really know it even existed as well, and I was a fan of Lundgren, you know, like we've talked about um, when I was little as well. But I had seen pretty much everything he had done, and this is about, you know, circa 1993-94. So I think the film that he had um, that had just come out was uh, Army of One, if, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I remember just seeing this, 
in the video store. It was just on the video store shelf, and I had no idea that it even that it even really existed. Um, and I guess this thing was it was just dumped, you know, in the U.S. Um, for a variety of reasons. There were a couple of reasons why it did not get a theatrical release. One of which was the fact that Lundgren just did not have the the, the star power that. Um, uh, they thought could sell a film at the box office, judging by his previous performances. And the other reason was this was produced, it was in post-production around the time of the, uh, the Gulf War. And so, you know, a, a mm. film coming out that is going to paint uh, uh, certain cultures and certain countries as, uh, as the antagonist or as the bad guy was not, was not in, in best interest. So this thing was literally just dumped on on home video um, by a company uh, by the name of Live Entertainment at the time. This is on VHS. But I remember seeing it on video store shelves and the package that this thing is put in. I mean, if you look at the cover, I mean, you know, it, look, the cover of the VHS, or the DVD, whatever. If you look at the cover and you look at the back, this thing looks like it's going to be something amazing. Because let's face it, if you saw The Punisher and you appreciated The Punisher for what it was to see... Dolph Lundgren and Louis Gossett Jr. teaming up again, and that cover is really cool. Just the way they're both standing, you know, back to back on the cover. Um, oh yeah, dressed nice and everything. Dressed nice. That's the thing too. That's why I was kind of surprised by him not holding a gun in this movie because I guess just glancing at the cover, I assumed he was holding a gun like Louis Gossett Jr. is, but he is not. Mm-mm. And I, I had to go back and look because I thought he was holding a gun on the cover, and I was like, well, that's false advertising. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of stuff that falls advertising with the film, um, but yeah. So you think it's going to be this this uh, uh, team up flick between the two, and even on the back of the uh, the back of the box, it states the stars of the Punisher join forces again. So you know, as a as a young adult, as a kid, when I saw this, I immediately had to see it to see what it was. Um, this is this is Dolph's movie. I mean, he is the main character. He is front and center, and it's extremely misleading in a lot of ways because I'm just going to state it right now. Lou Gossett Jr. is a wonderful actor. He's an extremely respected actor, and he is awesome in The Punisher. He is so good in The Punisher. In this one, he's just okay, and I almost feel like his role could have been really played by anybody, but collectively, Lou Gossett Jr. is really only in this film, I'd say, maybe 10 minutes, if that even. I mean, they really don't even team up. That was... The first time I saw this, I've seen this now a total of three times, but the first time I saw this, I remember being extremely disappointed. Why is Luke Gossett Jr. <laughs> even even on the cover when he's really not even... He, I don't know, well, it's because he's the biggest name. He, he, he was right, exactly. a, a bigger name than Dolph at the time. And yeah, you're right, it probably is about ten minutes of screen time. And they kind of do team up, but it, but it's in the very end of the movie for like half of his screen time within the movie. So for about five minutes towards the end, they kind of team up. Well, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this out there right now. They team up, and I would say the movie really doesn't uh, kick into full gear and become really enjoyable until that final act until those final 20 minutes is when things really start popping and things get somewhat exciting but man the hour leading up to you know that final act boy it's uh it's 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 a bit of a slog to get through <laughs> well yeah well i mean because like we mentioned there isn't a whole lot of action there's maybe like three or four action set pieces within the movie and they're they're very spread out and a lot of the first hour is just kind of like 
him getting wrapped into this cover-up, this plot that's going on, and then him trying to figure that out, which is a good way to like lead up to kind of a, a third act that's full of more action and everything kind of comes together. Um, and it's handled fine in the first hour. It's just, it's not overly interesting, and it's not played or even written so well to really drag you into it. Like, you're kind of okay with it, and then the third act happens, and everything kind of comes together, and it gets more action in it, and then it becomes really entertaining. But I feel like maybe with a little bit better directing, maybe with a little bit better writing, the first hour could have been a lot better. And I actually did not know that this wasn't released theatrically. It makes sense, though, because even my DVD copy I had of it seems like it was just a VHS transfer onto a DVD. Like, it didn't look very good. And that was going to be my next point as well. Um, yeah, the film is dated. I mean, it, it is dated. I mean, um, and yeah, the, the, the transfer is terrible. And to be honest, I'm even surprised that this even got a DVD release. I'd like to know how many units it sold um, <laughs> upon its release. But it's one of... The- is yours just on VHS? Is that no, what you I, I have the DVD as well, but I do I had the VHS at one time as well. Okay. But yeah, no, it is it is extremely dated, and it just has this old grainy quality to it. I mean, it, where it almost it it I've and I've always felt this even when I saw it for the very first time. But it has the it has the look of being like a uh, a foreign production, like something shot you know that you'd see on BBC or whatever. You know what I mean? It just kind of has this this old kind of grainy look to it and maybe that perhaps could be the the fact that it's transferred from vhs i don't know but yeah i know it it's dated well there's also like some bad uh dubbing going on in it as well so that seems to be part more so of the production it could be the transfer as well but yeah i noticed just like dubbing um there there is one scene toward like during a very good scene in the movie during the third act where that boom mic should have gotten a with credit in the end credits oh yeah no which you know is is a shame that it it has just this um low production value look to it when i'm gonna i'm gonna state two things number one this was directed by uh manny kato who went on to be a huge major player on the television show 24 so the guy the guy has some cred the guy has some talent and knows how to you know direct and uh choreograph and script a uh uh you know a scene so that's a shame and um the other thing that i'll throw out there um and this comes from jeremy as well um but this had a seven million dollar budget which was pretty much the standard for lundgren's pictures around this time i come in peace had about a seven million dollar budget the punisher also had you know a budget around the same but range it looks so much better Exactly, especially if you look at i come in peace compared to this one oh, yeah. i come in peace holds up it looks like something that you know what was was filmed just you know a decade ago um the fact that cover-up is you know almost 30 years old you watch the transfer it's it's very apparent <laughs> well yeah and uh, maybe that does have to do with the fact that it wasn't theatrically released so maybe of course dvd wasn't around at the time so it might have been kind of produced and done specifically for vhs so they never really had maybe good negatives to go back and do a transfer of all they really had was vhs um also with the director uh manny Cotto, like um didn't he come on the production late, like right before they started filming? Didn't he maybe not get a lot of time to prep or really know what he was doing? Because I think the writer was originally supposed to direct this, and then he dropped out right. like right before they started filming, and so he was kind of a plug-in director. So maybe that kind of like shows why he maybe wasn't able to 
give his best to this project? No, that could be it. I mean, you know, the thing with this film is, you know, its intentions are so noble. I mean, the, the, you can tell it is trying to do a lot, and it is trying to say a lot. But yeah, I, I don't know how many days this thing had to shoot, but it really it really falls short and, you know, comes up short in quite a few areas. And one of those areas, I would say, is I'm, I'm not going to knock, you know, uh, Lundgren and his performance, or really even Luke Gossett Jr., because I feel like those two guys are trying the best that they can do. But the story, it feels like they are just trying to rush to the finish line and throw something together because, especially in that final act, man, it just, it, I don't want to say it falls apart, but it, they try to wrap it up together too, too neatly and too quickly considering everything that preceded it, you know? Well, yeah, I feel like the story and what happened and like the big reveal all happens within about five minutes. And then there's about 10 10 to 15 minutes left of movie where it just kind of like stretches out what the eventual like ending is but kind of the whole big reveal and the wrap-up of like everything the last hour had led up to happens within five minutes and doesn't make a whole lot of sense no no it doesn't make a whole lot of sense you know but i do i do like the idea i mean the, the general overall plot for this thing is you know uh mike anderson you know he is this american journalist He's also written a few books that kind of throw that in there as well, kind of some exposition. You know, he's 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 a, uh, a successful journalist sent into Israel. There's been a bombing of a U.S. naval base, and a mysterious package has been stolen by this terrorist group who's going by the name of Black October. And they have stolen. We we later find out. Um, it's it's not a huge secret, but they they steal this nerve gas that is just you know the the most volatile, deadly stuff you can imagine. And they're planning on using it on, you know, an unsuspecting population somewhere. So Mike Anderson is investigating this and trying to figure out, okay, who is Black October and where did the package go? Yeah, uh, let's talk briefly about the nerve gas because this is kind of like tossed in like we, we see hints of it. So we know it's some kind of like noxious gas. But they kind of have, like, a line or two where it's a throwaway where it's just like, oh, scientists were working on a new kind of fertilizer that was going to make, you know, planting crops cheaper and growing crops cheaper. But they found a new compound, and it's a nerve gas that it's a deadly weapon. And I I don't know, it's just kind of thrown away. It's like, oh, they were just working on fertilizer for crops, and then they discovered, like, a new bioweapon. Who would have thought? Well, and that line of dialogue is given by Lou Gossett Jr., and... You would think, you know, Luke Gossett Jr., who is this respected big-name actor, he throws it away so quickly that I literally, it's funny you mention that, because I had to rewind that scene a couple of times, because it is such a vital plot point that is getting, you know, tossed out there in the film so so quickly without without a whole lot of build-up to it that, you know, you're kind of like... It's easy to miss. It's easy to miss. It's very muddled, and... Uh, one of the other twists that comes on in the third act, which we'll be getting to, that's also, you know, a little muddled, where I had to rewind that as well, because you get you can miss that as well. Like I said, they're trying with a lot here, and they're coming up short in, you know, 
in in these these uh, areas with the story. They definitely are, and, and I agree. Like, of course, Gasa doesn't have a lot to do in this movie because he's only in it for about ten minutes. Uh, you know, towards the end, he's kind of a bit more involved in the plot, but still, you know, he's just kind of there as a character. There is just one scene of Gossett that I think is really good uh, that I actually had to just write down on my notes because I was like, man, I really love Gossett Jr. and I'm just happy he was here. And it's just the one scene where he's kind of yelling at uh, Coop, uh, a character that we haven't really mentioned yet, um, that's uh, that's Dolph's buddy, um, but just yelling at him as he's getting into an elevator and that kind of shot reverse shot and seeing his reflection in the elevator as he is just pissed and yelling at this guy, like that was a pretty good scene. Like he 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 did his thing in that scene. You know, he does his thing, but, gosh, you know, <laughs> if you compare Lou Gossett Jr., his performance in this compared to The Punisher, you know, in The Punisher, you know that Lou Gossett Jr. was in that film. I mean, he is, I mean, there are so many scenes, and granted, collectively, I'd say Lou Gossett Jr. is really only in The Punisher for maybe 20 minutes or so, but you know that he is in that scene, and he delivers. I mean, his performance is amazing. I'm going to say it and cover up, he's pretty forgettable. I mean, you really do. When you finish the film, you almost kind of forget that Gossett Jr. You remember Dolph. You remember, you know, you remember the, the final act of the film at the Easter celebration. But Lou Gossett Jr., he just, he just disappears in the film, and you don't even really remember he's in it, other than the fact that, thankfully, he's on the cover. So <laughs> yeah, and so so speaking of that though, because yeah, you, you are correct. He he is much better in the Punisher. He seems much more invested in the Punisher. Do you think he was a late addition to this movie? That maybe with you know the director dropping out, who was the screenwriter, having to get a director in at the last minute. Do you think maybe he was a, a last minute addition to try to like maybe people were losing faith in this project? They toss him in there. They can put him on the poster. It's reteaming from the Punisher, which did okay, I guess. Like, do yeah. you think he was kind of shoehorned in and just like you know uh, he only had to work for like two day, two or three days or something like that, and just kind of was plugged in and didn't give his all because you know just uh, yeah, I guess I'll be in the movie. I was gonna ask you that same question actually is because yeah i have a theory as well that maybe i almost think that the character of jackson <laughs> you know what's funny is it's written on the on the cover of the box art and then in the film as well in the opening titles it's lucas jr as jackson <laughs> um so i almost kind of wonder if the character of jackson was written with Lou Gossett in mind and put in there. You know, I mean, and this isn't exactly a, a new concept. You know, productions all the time will, you know, write a uh, write a character, create a character with a specific actor in mind, get that actor on set, even if it's for only a couple days. But if you have that actor on set, then you get more money and you can get more sales, you know, when it comes to selling the film in various territories. So I would not be surprised if in 1990 that this was done, that that's, this is why we see Lou Gossett Jr. in the film. It was two, three days worth of work. I doubt, I think he probably worked on it a little more than that, but yeah, if maybe they, they wrote this character in at the last minute and got him in there just to kind of add some more um, acting gravitas to the film, if you will. Well, that, that is very possible, and also just with, like, a, a crediting standpoint, like, that could be why, because I did think that was weird as well, it's like, starring Dolph Lundgren, and then also starring, like, Lou Gossett Jr. as Jackson. He's the only one that they said 
as this Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and maybe that's because like they have to credit the screenwriter who was going to originally direct it, but they created this new character that maybe wasn't in the screenplay, so they had to give a credit as this character in addition to what was already there. Because to be honest, like his character doesn't need to be in this movie. No. If this character was not in this movie, it really wouldn't be any different. Like he's kind of tossed into like the final act scene that he's in. He doesn't really need to be there. Even when he first shows up in this movie, it like it's a uh, it's dolphin his, his buddy coop like just having a conversation and then gossett jr is like up on the second story and he just comes in and he's like hey mike why wasn't i in your book <laughs> all right i'll see you guys later yeah. like that's kind of his first scene yeah no and i mean let's face it i mean i think this film would have been you know definitely much better if if it was a full-on team-up flick between between lundgren and lou gossett but the scenes that that lundgren and lou gossett have together Let's face it; they're pretty much at each other's throats. They're they're in how many scenes are they in together? It's maybe three or four, and half yeah, of those scenes, they're three. yeah, two of those scenes, they're pretty much at each other's throats, giving each other shit, yelling at each other. And if you want to say they team up, which I don't even really think they do, but that <laughs> uh, that happens at the very end. Well, they they are they are uh, in a scene together where they're they're trying to get out of a situation together. That's about yeah. as much as they team up. And to be honest, like. Just by the way it was going when I first watched it, I thought that Gossett Jr. was going to be the villain. Like, he was going to be the heavy in it. I was like, oh, that's why he's kind of only seen sporadically. He seems like he, you know, bad things may be going on. And then he's going to come in in a third act and he's going to be like this, you know, crazy villain. That would be a good turn. You know, like after seeing them work mm-hmm. together on The Punisher and stuff. Like, no, he's the villain now and they have to go against each other. That would have been even better. But no, he's just kind of barely in the movie. Well, no, and you know, you talked about the nerve gas thing. Um, one of the other one of the other aspects where I feel the film almost kind of drops the ball in a lot of senses, and it, it, it it's really unfortunate. It's a huge missed opportunity. Is the whole conceit of this Black October, this Black October organization? I thought that was you know this has been done before you know in you know in other films, but I think the whole idea of the government you know, creating this fictitious terrorist organization to, um, you know, to place the blame on, you know, for, for all these, you know, atrocities is a really cool idea. And I almost kind of wonder if maybe the premise of the film, if they had gotten rid of the whole nerve gas angle and just had, you know, the Mike Anderson character trying to investigate this terrorist organization and all these clues are pointing to the fact that the terrorist organization is actually, you know, on American soil. You know what I mean? I think that would have been a uh, an interesting conceit as well, but they, they just throw that away as well, unfortunately. Well, I guess it's just, it's easier movie shorthand to have like an opening scene where like some guys steal a thing. You have to have a MacGuffin. You have to have a thing like there's a thing that was stolen and we have to figure out who stole it and where it's at and how to stop it. And that's kind of the driving force of your film. I guess that's easier than just being like, oh, there's this group, and where could they be? And they're planning something, and we have to figure that out. Like, yeah, that can be done very well. But I guess just, like, in terms of time, because this movie's, like, 89 minutes. Like, it it flies by pretty fast, even though the first hour kind of drags a bit. But, yeah, I think it's just good movie shorthand where, like, we can do an opening action scene, something blows up, some people die, we steal something, and then that's the driving force for the rest of the movie. Well, exactly. And, you know, like you said, it does need a MacGuffin, and so I understand that. But the fact that the way they just keep, in the first act of the film, they keep talking about Black October. I mean, I almost felt like if you wanted, you can make a drinking game out of it. It became almost laughable, in a sense, because they just kept throwing the name Black October. Oh, yeah, it's Black October. 
why they how they came to the conclusion immediately that this was in fact Black October that did it, but all you see is you know, you see a newspaper headline, I think, maybe once or twice thrown out there, and then the characters just keep saying, Oh yeah, it's Black October and then that almost gets dropped in the second act where you don't hear it anymore. It's 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 Dolph talking about or it's Dolph investigating the the fertilizer company all of a sudden. You know, so like I said, it's it seems like it, it has these great ideas and it's trying to do too much and they they don't have the resources <laughs> uh, story wise, time wise, production wise to execute them and pull them off uh, 100%. Well, speaking of, because you're, you're right, it, honestly, when I think about it, the Black October thing is actually kind of confusing. I guess just when it shifts to that third act and everything kind of comes together and it starts being more of an action movie, that just kind of like maybe not think about it anymore. But yeah, the Black October thing, it seems like, you know, the government knows about Black October. Louis Gossett Jr. knows about Black October and there's some there's people that they're going after. And then at some point in the movie, it kind of switches and like Dolph gets in a car with this guy that I guess he kind of knows and then they're like, no, they, they faked these pictures. Oh, Black October isn't real? Like, how long has this been going on? If they're that high up on the list and there's international stories about them and Gossett Jr. thinks it's them and is going after them, yet they've just been faked by the person behind this thing the whole time? Like, that's that's like James Bond, like, Spectre kind of shit going on. Well, yeah, and, you know, like I said earlier, the film is still trying to keep one foot in, in, in the action genre, in the action door. And so you do get a pretty cool car chase. It's not... It's not the best car chase I've ever seen on film, but... Um, it's welcome. It's welcome, yeah. The film does start to come alive um, in this car chase, and I think a lot of that is credited to... I, and I didn't know this until I just uh, watched it again recently, but Vic Armstrong was a second unit director on the film. Do you, are you familiar with Vic Armstrong at all? Yeah, isn't he... Uh, he was known mostly as like Harrison Ford's stunt double and the Indiana Jones films and things like that. Yep, and he also... His directorial debut was one of Dolph Lundgren's films, Army of One. So he has worked, you know, with Dolph a second time as well. Oh, I actually haven't seen that one. But yeah, if he directed that, I, I bet that's like a pretty good action movie. <laughs> oh, it is. It's, it's better than this one, I'll tell you that. So... <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, so I gotta wonder if that particular car chase scene, the reason why it looks, I mean, there's a lot of close-ups on the wheels, I almost think maybe too many close-ups, but, um, it, like I said, the film does come alive, and that is one of the scenes in the film that, um, that works. Well, I I do also like the fact that it is a three-car chase, it's not just like, you know, Dolph in, in a car being chased by like the CIA. It's it's Dolph in the car with Susan, who we haven't even talked about, which we need to get to because she's probably one of the biggest problems in this film. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's Dolph in a car, a kind of a small car, being chased by two CIA agents that are following them. Then they are being chased by a third car uh, of unknown people that I guess yeah never really get to be known, <laughs> but that are shooting at the CIA with, with you know machine guns while the CIA is chasing Dolph and then trying to get the CIA out of the way to then chase Dolph and kill them themselves. Like it, it's cool that it's a three part chase instead of just being the usual like one car chasing another. No, that is pretty cool. And you know the other thing I will throw out there as well that is unique as well. So we're going from car chase back to Dolph Lundgren's character, but you know. The thing with Lundgren is, like I said, he's always wanted to try new things with his characters. And, you know, on the one episode when I uh, uh, spoke with um, uh, Christopher Hatton, the the director of Battle of the Damned, you know, it's always been a big thing of 
of Dolph Lundgren to when he when he takes on a role, he likes his characters to have little characteristics, little character traits. And so I don't know if you picked up on these or not, but you know Dolph's Mike Anderson character has some has some traits that are <laughs> that are kind of cool. The first one is the smoking and the cigars. He always has a cigar in his mouth. I thought that was kind of cool. Honestly, that's the one that I don't like. Oh, you don't? Okay. And yeah, and, and I don't know. It just for some reason it just didn't seem to match the character for me. Like, the the reporter, the ex-Marine, like, that didn't... And also, of course, like, and maybe it's just with time, maybe it wouldn't have been quite as much in the early 90s, but of course it's just like, oh, he's doing, like, a Schwarzenegger thing. It kind of seems like... Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. And again, maybe a lot of that is because it is Dolph in the role. I mean, I, I, think, I think we'd be a little more accepting of the cigar if it was, say, a Kurt Russell or a Michael Douglas, but... Yeah, I, I do get what you're saying. He seems too smart for that. He seems too smart to be smoking those cigars. He seems like he takes too good a care of himself to not care about smoking cigars all the well, time. Well, and I'm going to go out there with the other character trait then as well. Um, excellent segue. Uh, he enjoys the sweet treats. There are <laughs> there are two scenes of that one I do like. <laughs> where he is eating pie and he's eating pudding. And I'm sorry, but you can't have him shirtless in one scene where he just has this glistening, you know, Greek god physique. But he smokes cigars and, you know, eats his cake as well. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I kind of wonder <laughs> if maybe Dolph was the best choice for the role if they were going to go with those those little, those little those tiny little character moments. Yeah, if you if you had, like, Danny DeVito in this role, yeah, sure, smoking cigars, eating all the pudding. Like, that, that's fine. But, yeah, with him, it, it kind of feels like maybe it's too much. Like, it should have been maybe, like, one or the other. Because that almost... Because there's also the drinking. Like, he, he drinks a good bit in this movie as well. So it seems like if he's more kind of, like, maybe a somewhat wrung out reporter, like, he's written some books, but it's kind of implied that maybe they haven't sold super well. Like, people are like, we're proud of you for writing this, or this one random reporter is like, oh, you spell all the words right, but maybe, like, they're kind of failed books that's kind of alluded to, and, you know, he has the drinking thing, he's eating the sweets, he's smoking the cigars, like, so if he's kind of more down on his luck, or, like, you know, things aren't going great for him, like, that would be good for the character, but when he still looks like Dolph looks in this movie, you think it's going fine for him. Well, wouldn't that have been a cool character arc as well, is that he, you know, maybe um, he is sent to Israel, that is, this is the last stop that no other reporter wants to go to, and he is looking for that big story to kind of um, resurrect and redeem his career, and so he goes to Israel hoping for something, and, you know, that, that that's the story as well. That would have been kind of a neat little character arc. Then again, well, if you're going to have a character who is drinking and who is, you know, eating fat and smoking cigars, I, I hate to say it, as much as I do appreciate and respect Dolph in this role, maybe you better go with someone else, you know? Well, or, I mean, it, it's still doable because it's kind of said in a throwaway line that he's replacing another reporter that, like, broke his leg covering the story. Kind of like, oh, they just shoved me out here or whatever, but... Yeah, if he was maybe like, oh, well, I released that book, but it's not doing too well, so I kind of need the money, so I volunteered to come do this. But yeah, no, also, instead of having him look away, he doesn't hear, th throw that Punisher stubble on him, man. Like, make him look a little bit more downtrodden, a little bit more like, kind of, he's had a, a rough couple of weeks or something like that. Instead of, you know, having the scene of him, like, glistening in the towel, like, popping his muscles and stuff. Yeah, have him be kind of unshaven, have his hair be kind of roughed up, like, looks like like you know he's been drinking for a while or something 
Well, what are those books about, anyway, that he has written? They never really talk about that. They never really talk about what the mission, excuse me, not the mission, the story was that he was covering in Rome. They allude to it, they allude to that, and I'm assuming maybe one of the books is regarding his uh, his story in Rome as well, but they never touch upon that at all. Yeah, it's kind of, like, hinted at, but it's never really outright said, but it seems like, yeah, at least one of his books, and maybe, like, he tried to write one, it didn't go well, but this is maybe, like, his better book, but again, the way it's played is almost like his buddy Coop is just like, yeah, no, I read it, man, good job, you, you wrote a book, and that other reporter is just kind of like, yeah, good job, you spell all the words right, just like, maybe it was kind of tanking, but I feel like it was maybe about the Rome thing, and because even that's why Gossett Jr. asked, like, hey, why wasn't I in the book kind of thing. So, but yeah, they don't really go into it. And it's not it's more like a throwaway character trait than it is like maybe part of his actual story or arc at all. Well, speaking of throwaway characters, um, <laughs> the character of Susan Clifford, <laughs> who, oh, man. who is Mike Anderson's love interest. So. This character is portrayed, I found this just amazing. I don't know if you saw, if you looked this up or not, but the character of Susan Clifford is portrayed by an actress by the name of Lisa Berkeley. This was her first and only film role. She never acted in any other, anything else that we know of that is, that is least on film. This was it for her, and boy, oh boy. I, 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 I knew it was the introducing credit. I didn't know this was her only one. This is but, it. Uh, yeah kind of makes sense this is it yeah no it's um her acting look look and i'm not an actor so i cannot uh i i i it's probably not my place to judge another's acting but you know we have to in looking at this uh she's terrible <laughs> in this role I well mean. see and and here's the thing um okay so her character she is like an ex-lover uh, of Dolph Lundgren's character. Uh, you know, they they were to, together back in during the Rome incident, and then you know because of what happened, uh, uh, Dolph Lundgren like apparently tipped off the CIA about what was going on, so he had to leave because his life was in danger, and she left because you know her life was also in danger because they were entangled, kind of thing. Like that again, all throwaway lines that you could miss very easily. Uh, so they kind of come back together, and oh no, she's actually with his old buddy Coop now. They're set to be married. Like, that's a decent character. Like, that's a good triangle to play. That's, you know, things you can do. But she, right off the bat, out of the gate, is playing this like she is in a like a noir film. Like, she is the femme fatale in a, in a noir film. So it kind of gives away anything that happens with her character. And honestly, her performance, it... And this is nothing against this other performance, because it makes sense within that film, but it reminds me a lot of, like, Sean Young and Blade Runner. Kind of like a robotic film mm-hmm. Fatel kind of thing is kind of what she's doing, but it doesn't fit this movie. Well, no, yeah, and, you know, like I said, I, I, I like and I appreciate the idea of, you know, um, you know, Dolph reuniting with this, uh, with this former lover who um, this former lover feels jilted by him and everything. You know, that that is a... That is an interesting angle to go off of, um, and the fact that she is now engaged to his his former best friend, that's also a really cool angle. But yeah, she is playing this so you know. I mean, it's one when we first see her um, in one of the her first scenes, she is on camera. She's giving a a news report to to the media, and so I understand her character being a little robotic in those scenes. However, when she is with Dolph one on one. 
she is still <laughs> she's still emoting the same you know the the same type of dialogue that she was using with the re, with the reporters with the media. So it's it, she she is playing this just really odd, and I'm surprised that Manny Cotto didn't tell her <laughs> you know hey can can you pretend that you liked Dolph at one time please or. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. See, yeah, if she was up doing a press conference being robotic because she's saying exactly to the word what she is supposed and allowed to say, but then all of a sudden Dolph Lundgren throws out a question out of nowhere, that should throw her off. That should trip up her game a little yeah. bit. But no, like, it's still the same, and she kind of gives him a robotic dead-eyed stare as she walks away. But yeah, no, that's just how it is. And again, that's why I kind of compared it to, like, Sean Young and Blade Runner. It seems like a kind of, like, noirish, femme fatale kind of robot to where, right off the bat, she seems, like, overly flirtatious with him. Uh, she seems like... Because even, like, you know, we find out, oh, she's getting married to his best friend thing. And it's it's just... It seems like she's trying to seduce him and bend him to her will right off the bat. There's nothing subtle about it. There's nothing like, you know, eventually you kind of notice like, oh, she's kind of playing him a little bit or getting him to do things. So when it finally comes to like, oh no, I'm about to write this story about how Black October is a complete hoax and I found this out. And then she's like, I'm going to take a shower. Hey, can you come in the shower with Can you hand me the conditioner that I can very easily reach myself so that I can distract you from writing your story? It's so obvious. It's frustrating. It's extremely obvious. And yeah, it, <laughs> extremely frustrating as well. You know, because when you first see her character, you know, spoiler alert, typical of all these type of thrillers, there's always going to be a double cross or two. I mean, that's just that's just the standard and the trope with these films. And when you first meet her, it, it's obvious right away that she is going to double-cross Dolph, especially in the completely gratuitous and un unnecessary sex scene. Um, you know, especially at that moment as well, she's she's going to screw over Dolph, literally. You well, know, and, and and there's the thing. Uh, yeah, you, you know me. I have no problems with the sex scene. They they work in films. Characters need to need to you know connect. Uh, it happens, especially like oh, as far as we know in this film, like her husband to be just died. Her ex lover is there. She needs some comfort. Like yeah, a sex scene can make sense. But the thing is, in this movie, it it comes off like it's a Cinemax movie. Mm -hmm. it, it's this weird kind of soft core, like certain lighting, they're in the shower. Uh, even Dolph doesn't do very well in the sex scene. He kind of seems like the act of having sex or like having sexual things happen to him hurts him. And it's just like this blue lighting and it just, it seems kind of sleazy. And with is kind of serious as this movie has taken itself so far and with the kind of thriller angle and kind of being light on the action stuff this just feels really out of place and it seemed more like well you know we gotta put something we gotta have a, some nudity we gotta have a sex scene we gotta have something to, to, to make it pop mm -hmm. and it also seems like maybe uh, you know this is an introducing uh, credit for her maybe she's a new actress or like oh hey you know put put a, a new lady in there with, with this uh, action star and maybe like, oh, maybe out of the few that it came down to, she was like, yeah, I'll do a gratuitous sex scene. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, I, I, it just, but it feels kind of gross and it does feel like a Cinemax softcore kind of thing that just doesn't mesh with the rest of this movie because the rest of this movie wants to be taken seriously, more or less. Exactly, exactly, yeah. No, it wants to be taken seriously. It, it's this, I mean, it's a political thriller, you know, which we've seen done before numerous times. And, you know, on one hand, 
you know, I'll give I'll give the blue lighting credit because it does look kind of cool if it was in a different movie. You know what I mean? It, but but a political thriller movie that, like you said, wants to be taken seriously, wants to be, um, you know, the, this dramatic piece, especially for Dolph, for this blue lighting to come in in this scene. And they also intercut this scene with, um, you know, the, the, the bad guys, <laughs> you, you know, um, handling the nerve gas and plotting something else with the nerve gas, which is going to come into play later in the third act. It just, like you said, it, it doesn't feel, uh, it feels like it belongs in a different movie, and it kind of adds to the whole disjointed nature of the film. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of sleazy where the rest of the movie is kind of respectable. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a time where, like, you know, like I said, I, I give Dolph a lot of credit in this movie. I, I give what the movie is at this point in his career a lot of credit. But, like, he could have taken a cue from Van Damme in this movie. You know what would have been okay? It, she draws him into the shower. They start, he gets in there with his clothes on. They start kissing. Guess what? You cut to afterwards and you kind of know everything that happened and everything that's going on with their characters. And he stands up and you get a Dolph bun shot. That would have been fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that would have been okay. It wouldn't have been overly sleazy or, like, overly gratuitous and you know you still you still get your money shot more or less no yeah no so one of the things that hurts the film and again after after she leaves we we know so they have their they have their night of passion together and she leaves and we get this action sequence which again the film is it has Dolph Lundgren in the lead and it's trying to keep that foot in the action door and so we get this action sequence with this kickboxing assassin disguised as room service which is kind of a cool scene I'll, I'll give it credit and like i like i said earlier this is when the film i think really comes alive because this is the third act and this is when we get you know the most action in the film and so yeah we get this this scene where he is trying he is being strangled by this uh this kickboxing assassin and it's a pretty cool scene. It, it is, and I, again, I have respect for the scene because usually you figure like, oh, a fight scene's gonna happen, and so like all of a sudden, well, you know, Dolph's a big dude. He's got a lot of muscles. He knows martial arts. He's all of a sudden gonna be a great fighter and have to take this guy out. But no, this is a sloppy fight. Like Dolph is losing for like ninety percent of this fight, and is just barely hanging on and struggling, and is not even fighting back very well. He just eventually by just sheer will and holding out long enough gets the upper hand and then not even like a cool like he jump kicks him or anything like that no he drowns the dude in a tub well he drowns the dude excuse me he drowns the dude dude in a tub and the other thing that i felt was just a little cheesy was okay so we see the uh we see the guy come in and deliver the room service and then he pulls the, the cable wire out of you know out of his pocket or whatever and then him wrapping it around Dolph's neck is done in a silhouette shot. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but that that just infuriated me. The fact that it was done via a silhouette shot I, or a, a shadow or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, I would have liked to see you know the build up to that a little bit more rather than just simply you know one shadow attacking another shadow. You know what I mean? Yeah, like this isn't an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Like, <laughs> this isn't how we handle that. And again, yeah, and then it cuts and it, it seems kind of weird and disjointed because sometimes it looks like, oh, it's just uh, Dolph's fingers that are between his neck and the cord. And then all of a sudden the phone is in there sometimes and sometimes it's not. It's just, it's not, there's not a lot of uh, continuity in it, uh, which is yeah. a little frustrating. But again, the fight gets better once like that, 
we get past that and they start like you know throwing each other into the walls and breaking everything like and kind of slowly because again like that's what i appreciate too is that like no uh, dolph is a much bigger dude than this guy but this guy is obviously a paid assassin and dolph gets his ass kicked for a while <laughs> and it's just yeah. uh, again through sheer will and just holding out long enough until he can get the upper hand or like hit him into enough things to wear him down that he finally gains the upper hand and is able to win this fight. So even just like this is the first real fight of the movie because the only other real action scene before this has been like a couple of explosions in that one car chase. So like even when there's finally a fight scene it's dragged out and it it, it takes a while for, for Dolph to be able to handle this. Well and I'm so glad Marcus that you stated it is trying to be a Hitchcock, Hitchcock thriller because yeah, the, the director and the writer of this film, um, they were heavily influenced by Hitchcock, and they were trying to make the film this Hitchcockian, um, Hitchcockian mystery, in a, in, a, in a sense. And so you definitely see that where they are trying to ape you know, Hitchcock's method and style. Unfortunately, in the end, you know, it's not... Well, they threw in the 80s exactly. That that's doesn't mix yeah, with it. Yeah, no, and so, yeah, you can see that there are, there are other elements in the film where they are, they are trying to go at that, but again, it just it just doesn't pay off. It doesn't play off um, as well as I think they would they would have hoped. And you know, this is one film that, like I said, it's it came early in his career, in Dolph's career where you have to respect it for that. But it's one of those ones where it just doesn't hold up as well. And I almost kind of wonder. Let me ask you this: Do you think if this film, it's never going to get a a special edition? You know, a special edition Blu-ray release by. <laughs> by Shout so, yeah. Factory or anything. But I'm wondering, do you think if it did, would the film hold up any better than, than it currently does, or would it be about the same? Like if it had a better transfer? If it had a better transfer and maybe a couple special features, you know, with with the director and everyone speaking about the making of the film. I certainly would like to, you know, to see those aspects, but I don't know. I kind of wonder if, if it would, if the film itself would hold up any better and be a, a better viewing experience well see that's the thing because it does it and even saying it's about seven million dollars this doesn't really look like a seven million dollar movie other than the fact that that seems like they filmed on location like in israel and stuff like that that probably took a good chunk out of it bringing gossip jr in probably took a good chunk out of it and stuff like there are big crowd scenes with lots of extras and stuff so like yeah i can see kind of where the money went but as far as the look that doesn't really show up and even like my dvd like there, there's a green it's kind of like cut off it's not widescreen it's a full screen version of it there's a green line through like the left half of the screen through most of it like it's just it's not a good transfer i would definitely probably enjoy it a lot better with a better transfer of it but it's not going to fix the problems of the movie which mostly involves the writing not really being up to snuff having some good ideas but not knowing how to execute or explore them well enough um and just mm -hmm. like weak links like you know the the female lead the love interest like isn't very good you know you have an actor like gossip jr not really having much to do even like who kind of turns out to be our villain like he's not that great either like Dolph's the best part of this movie so luckily it focuses on him mostly but yeah I just don't think there's enough to connect and make this film truly work the way it is I think this film had potential and could have been really good but a mm -hmm. lot of things fell short so <laughs> as we move into the third act of this film we get our um so we've already established that Susan is, you know, working for the bad guys and she double-crosses Dolph. But even before 
that twist gets thrown at us, we find out that uh, Mike Anderson's best friend, Jeff Cooper, um, who was killed earlier in the film, we didn't discuss that, but yeah, he's killed earlier in the film, at least so we think, and then we find out that uh, he wasn't really cool, uh, he wasn't really killed, he was faking his own death all along, and he has been the mastermind of this plan. Marcus, did this surprise you at all, or were, did you see this one coming? That one did. Uh, obviously, Susan was obvious from the beginning. Uh, I kind of thought that Gossett Jr. was going to be the bad guy, and that Susan was going to be working with him, and maybe like they were secret lovers or something. Like That's kind of where I thought it was going to go uh, when Coop died, because it was very obvious that Coop was going to die. Like, they're kind of walking out. He was just like, hey, uh, they're mixing me up in this cover-up. They're trying to blame this stuff on me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then they're walking out to his car, and he's like, oh, hey, uh, Susan, why don't you come over for dinner? He's like, hey, we're going to hang out and have a couple of beers and catch up. I was like, oh, he's about to blow up. (laughs) And then he did. So I was like, okay, and then that's going to allow him to hook up with Susan, and then things happen. So when he actually did show up in the third act, it's like, no, I faked it. That surprised me because I, I, what? (laughs) <laughs> that okay. made no sense to me. <laughs> and see, me personally, I saw that one coming mainly because we didn't get a funeral sequence or any kind. There, there was really no goodbye scene or anything. And I understand, you know, they have to edit certain things out, you know, um, to to keep the to keep the plot going. But even if there was a funeral scene, even if there was a a, a tearful goodbye scene in some kind of way, um, even if well, let's face it, if if <laughs> if Dolph Lundgren emoted a little bit more at his you know at his you know former best friend passing away maybe i might have you know been a little more surprised but yeah it just goes right from car blow up explosion scene to susan crying in in into anderson's arms i don't know i um <laughs> i i didn't i didn't buy it as uh as as much as maybe you did but well you no, know i understand that i i just think it's more I wouldn't have expected that character to be the bad guy because that character wasn't very interesting. No. And as we see, when he becomes the bad guy, is still not a very good bad guy or very interesting. So I was like, oh, he's just fodder. He's just like, oh, his old friend, he's in a couple of scenes. He dies. That allows him to get with the love interest. And then we see who really does this. And that's why, like, you have an actor like Louis Gossett Jr., if he was the bad guy, ooh, he could chew some scenery. But then this guy comes back and kind of throws out what his plan has been and why he's doing this, and it doesn't really add up. It doesn't really make sense. He's not very threatening. And it's just, that. I guess maybe it's just like, oh, that's the way you want to go with this? Like, I guess it's not that I couldn't imagine it being an option. Like, oh, like that, that's a big twist. It's more just like, you want to make that guy the bad guy? No. Like, he's... He's not going to do much for And see, this is probably one of my biggest complaints with the film, was this big revelation scene where he is explaining his big grandmaster plan. It goes so quick, and it is such a... The, the entire scene is... Is it really that exciting for us to, as a viewer, really understand what's going on? Like I said earlier, I had to rewind this a couple times to figure out what's going on, because it is, it is extremely muddled, but we find out that... Yeah, Coop has been, you know, he has been masterminding this entire thing all along. He is the one who blew up the naval base. He is the one who stole the nerve gas. And we find out that he is planning a a revolution using the whole fictitious Black October group to to blame, essentially, right? He created Black October. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
which is on everyone's radar. And again, that's how uninteresting and like kind of how nonsensical this is, is that I noticed like it happens a lot in the scene too. So this is the big like, oh, the villain reveal. I'm like, oh, my best friend betrayed me. And that boom mic is just popping in the top of that frame. And I just couldn't stop looking at it. And I was paying way more attention to that than I was his whole big speech because it just, he didn't grab me. No, yeah, he doesn't grab you as a villain. And, you know, I've said this before um, on some of the other episodes. I I would say, you know, some of Dolph's most memorable films. And you, I I imagine you could probably agree with this as well with Van Damme's films. But, um, you know, there's the old saying, your film is only as good as as, as its villain. Okay, and I would say Lundgren's most memorable films, Van Damme's most memorable films, or even just any action movie in general, if you have a villain that is that is memorable, that is evil, that is just, you know, rotten to the core, that you remember, then the film is better as a result. And the fact that this... Well, one of Dolph's biggest movies is him as yeah. the villain. One of his most memorable is him as the villain because he has a presence and because he made a good mm-hmm. villain. Like, yeah, exactly. If you don't have a decent villain, there's no one for you to really root for for your hero to defeat. Like, if there's a good villain, either, like, just completely evil or that is somewhat understandable or something like that to where your good guy, your action star that you put yourself in the shoes of can defeat, that's great. But, yeah, if you have just, like, a... Uh, I mean, I kind of felt bad for for that guy from the beginning and his plan doesn't no, make his plan sense. doesn't make sense i mean and you know look many films do this you know where the villain is revealed in the final act and it's the, the person who you were not expecting fine um but this character this actor and the way it is executed i don't care you know what i mean i i don't care and it really is a shame because this is one of the things that that i think was done extremely well with the film is the final action sequence so, you know, Lundgren and Gossett Jr. are able to get the upper hand on, on Cooper. They are able to kill him, and we have... Of course they can! He's a little he's, nobody! Like, that, that's what's so frustrating. He's supposed to have, like, created Block October, have uh, uh, orchestrated this whole thing, dealt with this nerve gas, set up to kill, like, almost 100,000 people... Yet, like, Dolph just kicks a gun out of his hand, and then he just picks up a sword and starts, like, trying to hit Dolph with, like, softly with a sword, and he it just easily takes him out, and it's just, it's it's silly. Like, actually, his death is pretty cool. Like, when he gets impaled, like, that's actually, there are some good death scenes in this movie. Like, <laughs> Kato knows oh, yeah. film a dude dying. But, yeah, but just, yeah, that was disappointing. But it does, yeah, I'm sorry, it does pick up from here. Go go on. Well, yeah, it, it picks up, and, you know, the, the final action sequence is an, an impressive set piece. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll go out there and I'll say it. This is an actual enactment on Easter by, uh, by pilgrims of the 12 Stations of Christ. This is their Easter celebration. And, you know, fun fact, I guess Dolph... Um, had some disguised Israeli National Squad paratroopers who were, you know, following him, kind of providing protection. So this is, I mean, let's face it, this is essentially guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, this is keeping it real and placing, you know, an actor square in the middle of a real celebration. And so I thought that was always, um, you know, an extremely cool aspect, the fact that they took Dolph and they, you know, they, they could have, you know, cast, you know, dozens of extras and, you know, re refilm the scene. But no, the fact that they decided to, you know, film while this the, while this celebration was going on and everyone was walking and, you know, you know, get their money out of it, 
that was cool. And so, and I almost wanted more of that. Yeah, well, you get uh, amazing reactions from the people around them because, again, they're just, they're actually doing this. And, yeah, it is kind of guerrilla filmmaking in a way. But, yeah, then you have the this, you know, six-foot-three Swedish dude that, that is, like, bleeding from his side running through the crowd and stuff. Like, you get these honest, like, what is going on reactions oh, from yeah. people around them. Well, and I guess those, yeah, all the people were not informed about the production that was going on. And fun fact, I guess, <laughs> that they saw him, you know, he's, you know, here's Lundgren passing through the crowd. He is bleeding. Um, he was uh, he was apprehended and thrown on the ground and had M16s <laughs> pointed at him uh, because they were not informed of the production. Oh, so, man, that's crazy. Yeah, so that right there is, is really cool. I almost, as I was watching this, I kind of thought to myself, you know, it might have been a cool premise for a film in a way. Obviously, it would have taken the whole idea of the whole cover-up and, you know, journalist aspect out of it. But I was kind of thinking, what if the entire film took place at this celebration? Where, and I, I guess you could still have London play a journalist, but where they get wind that, you know, this uh, this deadly nerve toxin, nerve gas, is attached at this, you know, bell tower on Easter, and it becomes a race against time to you know to defuse the bomb to get to the top to, to get through this this massive crowd save all these people ooh, i thought that would have been ooh, kind of a cool time ooh, yeah ooh, yeah you could you could do a lot with that because yeah. yeah say like there's a little bit of setup maybe he's a reporter but you have like a good villain a good bad guy and maybe like he's almost putting like Dolph Lundgren's character through tests and maybe like he has to like as they're doing the celebration he's like going from station of the cross to station of the cross being put through these things by the villain to finally like try to get where he's going and defeat him and like you know maybe you could have a biblical obsession for the villain or something like that but like yeah, yeah that that yeah, and you could basically make the majority of the movie centered around this and him having to go through trials and like having to get you know piece by piece through this puzzle <laughs> to the end like that could be really cool yeah it could have been a biblical uh diehard with a vengeance in a set in yeah, a sense right exactly yeah <laughs> you know um so yeah I'm, I'm watching this and you know golly you know the uh yeah everything picks up in the final act and you know we we get all this action we haven't had you know this much action throughout the the previous you know hour and 10 minutes of the film but we get all this he gets to the top of the bell tower and okay surprise I, surprise actually but before we get to how the movie ends, there's one specific shot in this movie I want to ask you about because it, it was baffling to me. I thought it was so weird, but kind of an interesting, like, directing choice. Mm-hmm. Is that there? there's a scene where you, when you first kind of see Dolph actually moving through this crowd, because you see kind of like uh, like TV footage uh, of the people moving during the celebration through the crowd. And then all of a sudden it seems as if Dolph Lundgren is on the TV. Like you see him on TV in this crowd. And I almost kind of thought maybe it would cut to like Susan seeing this on TV or something like that in some weird way. But like, yeah, it's, it's still like you're watching this on TV and Dolph is now moving with the crowd. And then it cuts around and it's from Dolph's POV going through the crowd. Like I thought that was a really weird shot and a weird transition but i thought it was interesting from like just a directorial standpoint and again i kind of wonder if maybe they were trying to ape something maybe hitchcock might have done or might have you know attempted in one of his films perhaps but yeah i did notice that as well it's it's interesting they, they were going for something i don't know what again i can't help but wonder if they were just darting to the finish line and wanted to get something in the can had great ideas and just we're not executing them as well as maybe 
they had hoped. I don't know. Well, maybe that was a day of thing. Maybe Manny was Manny Kata was just like, you know, I got an idea. Let's just let's just try this out real quick. It could be cool. And they just kind of did it day of, and just like, yeah, that'll stay in. That'll be my one artistic touch in this movie. Well, speaking of artistic touches, I do. I did like the shot. It is in slow motion, but of Dolph um, with his back just pushing Susan out the uh, out the bell tower. Out the, through that clock, oh, yeah. that is a cool shot. Not not the shot of her falling down, but it's it's a slow mo shot of she's on his back and he just you know um just arches his back you know backwards yeah. and she falls you know through the uh, through the glass. I thought that was kind of a cool shot as well, letting you know that that's Dolph. That's what he does. <laughs> well, his whole uh, ascendance like to the top of the bell tower, which is kind of where we were talking about, but just like it is almost like a diehard at this point. It is kind of like he's a John McClane that's been beaten down mm-hmm. and is just like kind of trying to make it to the end, trying to save the day, but he's like losing blood, he's losing steam, he's losing energy, and just like is broken by the time he makes it up to like the final scene yeah well and the film just ends so abruptly i mean i know we were going to be talking about this but he is able to you know get the nerve toxin before it before it shatters on the inside of the bell and is released and you know you know a catastrophe he's able to thwart this catastrophe and the film just ends so abruptly to the point where we don't even know if Dolph lives or dies and i'm curious what do you think i assume he dies just the, do you? the way okay. it ends, yeah, I do because like he goes through all of this. He, you know, he's going through the crowd, bleeding because he got stabbed with a sword by by the bad guy, and yeah. So then he finally he's by the time he gets to the top of the bell tower, he was crawling his way up there. He can barely do it. He's trying to reach the nerve toxin to stop it. Then Susan comes in and robots around the scene for a second and they get into a fight so he finally like not only is he bleeding he's covered in blood he's you know gone through all this energy he just killed the woman that he loved that betrayed him and then he finally gets the toxin and as soon as he grabs it he just kind of collapses down with it in his arms and then the credits start so i just i would assume that like he completed his mission and he saved the day but he died doing that's how it played to me okay okay and i think i think those who um have followed the fan the the hardcore Dolph um enthusiasts and those who you know have seen the film i think that is the general consensus is that he does die um i would like to think that he lives just because you know luke gossett jr excuse me jackson luke gossett jr as jackson right (laughs) um he he knew where Dolph was going, did he not? So I imagine that he could have called in some security. I mean, he had his connections with the CIA. I'm sure he did, yeah. To, so I almost because he only had a leg wound. Yeah, so he he wasn't gonna die. So yeah, it's very possible he could have survived. But I don't know. It's almost like it almost means more to me if he does die. Like if he goes through all this and then it's just like he gets it, he saved the day, and then just like boom, credits, he dies. Yeah. <laughs> like I guess that just kind of does it for me. But yeah, I guess logistically it makes sense that like uh some because I kind of thought it was like well I guess someone's gonna come get him right. But yeah. Then seeing the credits roll is like well maybe he just dies and like all of this is for nothing. <laughs> like he saved the day, but just like uh, I guess in the end him and his story didn't really matter. He just kind of thwarted he saved a lot of lives well and yeah i mean you know the film like we said has such big ideas and i i honestly feel that it had these huge ideas and it's trying to do so much trying to be so serious 
and it's almost like it realized midway during the production that it just didn't have the necessary resources to pull everything off and the fact that again it it ends so abruptly like it does it just cuts right to credits I can't help but wonder if that is also one of the other reasons why the film has just been you know forgotten and passed off and is <laughs> covered up excuse me I'm gonna keep throwing out that pun <laughs> um, you know just because it is just so forgettable it, it, it's kind of a throwaway film in a lot of ways which is sad because it could have done more it could have been it had the opportunity to be more and to and to do something and to even say something but it just it just lumbers to the finish line and you know is is a disappointment yeah and then just kind of sputters yeah Yeah. because that's the thing yeah there's no even triumphant ending there's no even just like making a deal out of like if he did die like make a deal out of that you could have done one close-up shot of Dolph like holding it as, as like he's like losing consciousness or something just being like he did it and then he goes out but no it's literally like almost a silhouette like you see it's from maybe about 10 feet away and you see him grab it and then he just kind of collapses and we're at a distance from this character now that we spent the whole movie with that just saved the day and then the credits roll and we have no idea if he lived or died we have no idea if he's conscious we have no idea if anyone's coming to get him and yeah it, it's I don't know either it's kind of an artistic choice than just being like it doesn't matter if he lives or dies because you know he had this story but nothing was what it seemed and then like it was all about saving all these people or it's just like ah, the movie hit 89 or 85 minutes and you know we gotta we gotta end this or like this is about all we had but it just seemed like even just one close-up shot of Dolph either like keeping consciousness or like sighing a sigh of relief or like kind of you know, realizing he he did a job well done and kind of losing consciousness, like any kind of close-up shot of him would have been a better ending scene than just like from a distance collapse credits. Well, and I guess there was a deleted scene that was scripted and that was shot. You know, you talked about how it was it was an artistic uh, decision on behalf of Manny Cotto for the ending, and I guess there was a. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was shot. It was a closing scene of Dolph and Lou Gossett Jr. at the airport saying goodbye to one another. Um, but I guess I guess Manny Cotto liked the the ambiguousness of the ending of letting the viewer decide, okay, either he does live or he does die. Um, I think that would have been an interesting touch as well if they did end it at the airport, you know, of these two. I mean, this has been done, you know, in a lot of action movies, especially these buddy cop type movies where, you know, the the the, the two protagonists are saying their goodbyes to one another. They've made peace with each other and the one character is going home, you know, sort of like a black rain type thing, if you will. Um, I'd have been okay with that ending if that is how they decided to end it. But going back to what we talked about, how about how the film is just dis- is so disjointed in it. There's all these different elements. The fact that the film is called Cover Up, and you have this reporter, and you know you have all these different angles, and the fact that it ends so abruptly and so um, you know so ambiguous is is just a weird it's a weird creative decision. I I will say I I do like that better than the airport thing though because yeah that has been done in so many other movies and maybe that is an artistic thing from the director maybe it's just like that was written like maybe it's how it was originally written we even filmed it but just like no we've seen that before man we're going into the 90s now we need to bring a new kind of action film in here like no 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 we're not gonna we're not gonna do you know the the sad walking away music one we're not gonna do like the these 
these two guys gained respect for each other and they part ways kind of action movie. Note, guess what? Hero just dies. The end. <laughs> like Hero just dies and, you know, we're, we're sold on this being a Dolph Lundgren, Lou Gossett Jr. team-up flick and, <laughs> and we don't even get to see Lou Gossett Jr., again in the rest of the film you know well, that's so thing, because that is the more like traditional kind of safe ending that would have made sense they could have like you know had a moment of respect for each other gotten on a plane it would have ended in a freeze frame there would have been a song playing during the credits it, it would have made sense being the kind of movie it it sort of is but this movie does kind of take itself seriously in a way and does have a few artistic flourishes that I, I did like and appreciate to where, like, I kind of feel like maybe that was one, too. And he's just like, no, 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 we're not going to give them what they think. We're going to turn this on its head a little bit. This movie's going to be a thinker. This movie's going to be a bit darker than what you expect from these kind of movies. And again, it is much different than just about any of the movies I've seen with Dolph Lundgren or even a lot of action stars from this time. Like, how often is it that a, a star dies at the end of a movie like this? Like, it, I, I kind of appreciate it for that. I, I mean, it's, a lot of it doesn't work and a lot of it isn't executed great, but there's certain little flourishes and artistic decisions, it seems, that were made that, I don't know, it, it makes it stick out as being unique and different, even if, especially the first hour, <laughs> is pretty by the numbers and the writing doesn't quite connect. Well, and I think the big thing with this film is and this is just my own personal opinion but i feel like in general political thrillers are a bit of a tough sell i mean in order for a political thriller of uh, something like this to be sold and for it to click with audiences and um you know and everybody who is going to be seeing it i think you need a couple things uh first of all you need solid actors okay to to help deliver um <laughs> to, to help deliver the whole conceit and i think the big thing is that the production values need to match the scope and the idea of the film. And and by that I mean, you know, if you're going to be doing this big political thriller and you only have, in the case of cover-up, $7 million, then you need to do something that $7 million is going to allow you to do. And obviously, you know, your your premise is not going to have your, you know, your lead protagonist globetrotting you know, the world and, you know, um, going to various, you know, di different countries and getting involved in all sorts of different, uh, different adventures. Um, but the one thing I will throw out there is Dolph Lundgren did a film back in 2004 called The Defender. Have you seen it? Are you familiar with it? I, I have not, actually. No. Okay, so this is actually Lundgren's directorial debut. And the film is a political thriller, but one of the things that makes it work in my opinion i would put it up there as being one of his best films actually um you know it's funny lundgren he's directed i believe five or six films at this point but that was his first film and he was able to you know he had all this all these years of experience in the business and so he was able to see what had worked on various films and what did not and so what he did in directing the defender is he looked at the budget he looked at the shooting time that he had and he also you know examined the script and so here it is, it is a political thriller, but the entire the entire movie, all 90 minutes, take place at this one hotel. Okay, obviously your characters are not going to be going, you know, um, back and forth to the White House and, you know, globetrotting like, like you would in these type of films, but it all takes place at one hotel, which on paper, as I'm explaining it, may sound a little lackluster, a little boring, 
but man, he delivers. He is able to, there are shootouts galore, explosions galore in the film. I mean, it, it doesn't run short of the action. It still delivers a story with double crosses, with turns, with twists, but it is realistic in, in what it can do as far as, as far as the idea and the scope. And I feel like with Cover Up, it has this it has this this big idea where it is trying to do so much. It's trying to be serious, and then, like I said, that I I don't know maybe they they realized you know uh, two weeks into shooting, oh shit, we can't do that scene. Let's cut that. Let's do this instead, and so the film falls apart and it feels it feels a little loose. Well, yeah, and, and you saying that. Uh... That, that kind of made me think of that, because, yeah, in a lot of political thrillers, that is kind of a theme, is that, like, the hero doesn't win. Whether they die or whether they just, like, you know, aren't able to complete their task, it's just like, oh, no, this is bigger than you. There, there's this whole government, there's this shadow thing going on, to where, like, this is bigger than you, you can't control it, and you can't be the hero, you can't save the day. So, like, as far as him, like, dying at the end of it or something, like, maybe he completes the mission, but he still dies kind of plays into that a little bit but it doesn't even play that much like a political thriller by the end of it because it's still just one dude or I guess like you know two people total that are like behind all of this it's still like the single villain mastermind thing it's not like a big government conspiracy and cover up that he's fighting against it's just a dude Yeah. so like I think that's why that ending of him dying like doesn't really work in the political thriller way either so maybe that's why it's a little disjointed. I mean, I guess I liked it just because it was kind of different. But yeah, I guess it doesn't really work well as like a, you know, kind of schlocky action movie. And it doesn't quite work as a political thriller either. But it does kind of okay at both of them at times. Well, no, I, I, I highly recommend, as I was watching this, I, you know, I, I can't speak for, for Lundgren at all. But I can't help but wonder if when he signed on to direct and star in The Defender, if he said, okay, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at my experiences from all these other films that I've done that have been direct-to-video efforts, but um, I'm going to look at Cover Up, which was this serious, um, political, dramatic thriller, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it right this time. You know what I mean? Because I feel like a lot of the themes, if you look at I highly recommend you check out The Defender, man, but um, a lot of the themes are extremely similar. But the defender, I feel, is so much better because, again, it is it is Lundgren looking at what at what the budget and the shooting schedule is going to allow, and it all takes place in in, in one single location. But man, he is able to you know it's ninety minutes, but he is able to make it work and deliver in that time. And there is not one minute in the film where you know it is lagging, it is lumbering like like cover-up is so um that'll be my recommendation well that, that's interesting because i i'm pretty sure i haven't seen any of the movies he's actually directed but like having been in movies like this and maybe seen like movies that he believed in or thought would be good that didn't come together for this and this reason like he probably got the experience to make movies like that and be like well i've seen where these things have gone wrong and i've seen yeah. you know where they can go right and kind of use that experience to do it because i think the closest i've come to that is like uh i did see skin trade which i know he like co-wrote and produced and stuff like that which i was a big fan of but i don't think i've actually seen any of his like directing movies no i highly recommend you check out what he you know behind a camera um, Dolph is, uh, he, he's quite a talent. He's a talent in front of the camera. There, his last film that he directed is, it, it's, it, 
the correct title is actually Icarus, but here in the States it's known as The Killing Machine. Real original title there, I know. Um, <laughs> but uh, that one was actually taken away from him in post-production. Um, but the other ones that he did, uh, Command Performance, Missionary, was it Missionary Man, The Defender, and The Russian Specialist, he did those all, um, all in succession from one another. They deliver, and they are awesome. So I highly recommend it. But yeah, please check out The Defender if you want to see what a direct-to-video political thriller starring Dolph Lundgren should look like. Um, check that out over cover-up. I highly recommend but I definitely will, and I, I don't know, just, I, I did enjoy watching this movie again, I did enjoy seeing Dolph in a lead role, because, again, a lot of the stuff I, I know him from is stuff, you know, like Rocky or the Universal Soldier movies, where it's like, you know, he either plays the bad guy, or he's like, you know, a, a, one of the two leads, or like the Expendables, where he's like one of an ensemble and stuff, so the movies I've seen where he's the true lead, like, that, that's a pretty low number of movies, um, and, and so I enjoy seeing one of these, especially one that's kind of out of the box for what he usually does. But, of course, you know, because Van Damme's always on my brain, I was kind of thinking and comparing, like, career trajectories for them and stuff. And I think the thing, even though this is kind of during Dolph's, like, golden period of starting out, I think the only reason, like, it never quite happened for him the way it did with Van Damme as far as, like, hitting those highs like uh, I really love what you said on this podcast before about him being a survivor like he he has kind of like worked steadily done quality work he's maybe never hit like big time A-list Hollywood and stuff like that but he's worked steadily so even like when it's been not so great times or direct to video like he was kind of prepared for that because that's kind of what he was doing to begin with and I think he just never really had that that start off hit he never really had like that blood sport because i kind of think like that's that's what worked for van damme he had that that canon movie that made like four or five times its budget back and then that kind of like catapulted him i think if masters of the universe had been a big hit that probably would have same thing would have happened or if any of these early movies would have like really connected with an audience and would have like triple quadrupled its budget I think he maybe would have had that kind of same career trajectory, but I don't know if that would have been better for him or not, because I kind of feel like him being a scrappy survivor like has worked for him. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it, it's definitely... I mean, if you look at all the other guys who kind of came out of this period, you know, what is Jeff, what is Jeff Speakman doing nowadays? Well, he hasn't been... He's not doing any films anymore. What is Michael Dudikoff doing nowadays? He's he's not doing anything anymore either. But yeah, he's Lundgren, probably in some movie with the the words American and Ninja in the title. <laughs> so you know, but uh, but yeah, Dolph is still is still putting out films, and some are some are amazing, some are great. Others, you know, maybe not so much. But you know, he is he is getting out there. He's still he's still doing what we you know what we love seeing him do, and. Um, that that's why I have the ultimate respect for him, and he's always trying something new. I mean, if you look at every one of his films, he is always trying. You know, he's always a new character in some kind of way. Whereas, you know, Van Damme. Let's face it, I love Van Damme as well. But how many times have we seen Van Damme played playing a a burnt out assassin or a burnt out you know loner of some kind? You know what I mean? But well, Lundgren, he basically only has one of two modes now. It's either poking fun at his image or like you know playing a role that he would poke fun of his own image at. Yeah, kind of thing. so, um, but yeah, no, um, th that's why, the you know, um, we're going to be getting into our recommend here in a minute, but the one thing I will say about Cover Up is I feel it is definitely, 
it's such an interesting artifact of the era and it shows a forgotten side of Dolph from his golden era you know that this this era of films that he was doing that um, you know that they were not extremely high highly received upon upon their release but they've gone down as being you know cult favorites you know speaking to I come in peace and showdown a little Tokyo and Red Scorpion um, but this is that this is a film that was done in that period that um, not only has it gotten forgotten about but I don't even think people even know about it to be honest and so um, I would say it gets a recommend from me only for the hardcore Dolph fan and enthusiast, you know, anyone or or anyone who is questioning Lundgren's acting abilities, anyone who thinks that um, he is not able to emote and he is nothing more than just a, uh, you know, uh, you know, a big dumb, you know, a big dumb action star. This shows that there, you know, that there is more to him than that. Having said that, though, outside of a Dolph, outside of a Dolph Lundgren film. Um, it's it doesn't get a recommend from me. I, I think um, for the casual viewer who's going to come in and see it, they're going to get bored. They're going to get turned away. To be honest, I don't think anyone who is not a fan of Dolph Lundgren is even going to see this film. To be honest, it is just so it is just so forgettable. Um, so and, and it's I'll sad have because you know that there's someone uh, uh, s- somewhere in another state right now that is doing a Lewis Gossett Jr. podcast that would heavily disagree <laughs> with you. <laughs> Possibly, possibly. Um, you know, but with the past few episodes, every one of I, I've you know been been hitting a high with the past few episodes because I loved Rocky Four, loved Master of the Universe, loved Red Scorpion. This was if we go through his filmography, this was in my opinion the first misstep in his career. No fault of no fault of his, but um, probably on my uh, lower tier of my favorite films. Thankfully. He followed this up with Showdown Little Tokyo and then Universal Soldier, which are some of his best films. So um, that's what I will say for a recommend. How about you? Um, I I would recommend this. Uh, And again, even because I am, I I guess maybe I wouldn't call myself a casual Dolph fan. I'm maybe a little bit more than that. But still, there are a ton of his movies I have not seen. But even just kind of knowing who he is and seeing the films that I've seen, which of course I've seen all kind of the main big ones and a few of the other ones and a few of the ones that, you know, he's been not the lead but side characters, you know, your Johnny Mnemonics and stuff like that. And like I said, the newer Expendables and Universal Soldiers and stuff. I've seen certain newer ones of his like Skin Trade and Kindergarten Cup 2. Uh, I've seen a few of, you know, the older school ones like A Come in Peace, Silent Trigger, stuff like that. Uh, again, this just being in this time period i appreciate that it's something different and it's him not just being Dolph longer an action star and kind of falling into you know a lot of the same kind of movies he does for a while which many of them are good but it's you know similar style movies playing similar style characters i feel like still being kind of early i feel like his acting chops aren't quite there on this and that might not have even been his fault. It might have been like, hey, you're kind of selling this movie, so you kind of have to be like a charming reporter guy. But also the character kind of more called for like being kind of a sleazy, down-on-his-luck kind of guy and just couldn't really pull off both in this. Uh, but it's still a recommend. Like, he does very well in this movie. I think this movie has some interesting action, uh, even some interesting deaths and stuff, because when you actually see uh, the scene of, like, the, the nerve gas killing two guys, like, that's a cool, like, kind of gory, shocking death scene. 
Um, even like, you know, when the villain dies and gets impaled with a sword, like that's kind of a, it has these moments of like shocking action and death and it has these moments of the, the plot coming together or like Dolph just really pulling off the scene well that I think totally make it worth watching and if nothing else if you only know him because of like the Universal Soldiers or you know the Expendables movies or like Rocky Four, like hey this will be something to show you you know a little bit more of his range it might make you more of a fan of his because he carries this movie and he is the only reason to watch this movie and so I think anyone could kind of watch this and be like even if the movie wasn't great I, I got a little bit more respect for Dolph now yeah no no excellent well hey thank you so much for joining me um, as we talked about earlier at the beginning of the show yeah uh, you and I first met through your show uh, Jean-Pod Van Damme um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast and anything else that uh, that you'd like to plug well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I run a, a website called Crush Celluloid, uh, where I write and do podcasts and things like that. Uh, and yeah, maybe a year and a half or so ago, I, I started a podcast called Jean-Pod Van Damme, where I talk about the, the films of Jean-Claude Van Damme, who is very much my Dolph Lundgren, <laughs> as, as it is for you. Like, I, I, I love this guy since I was a kid, obsessed with his movies, love his work, love his career trajectory, just... just love discussing those films uh and yeah you you reached out to me just uh, as someone who listened to the show when we started chatting you've been on three episodes now. hoping to be on more <laughs> uh, and yeah you told me about yeah exactly uh and by the way i'm just gonna throw this out there but whenever blackwater finally comes out i think we should do a joint episode of our oh, that, yeah definitely i know you're doing your you're doing yours in chronological orders but maybe if you want to do a special episode or something i think we should just do a joint most episode. definitely i think <laughs> that has well i know in europe i think it has a a march release date and usually um the u.s is a couple to a few months after that so we'll be seeing it in 2018 so yeah yeah but we, we should figure out something for that because uh, you know other than of course you know you've been on my episode for Universal Soldier, and you'll eventually do that for your show as well. But this is the first like new movie with both of them in it since we've been doing our shows, so we we should do something a little special for that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I do that as well. Uh, I have a main podcast that's kind of on hiatus where I just discuss forgotten films. Uh, I do have another uh, mini series podcast that I'm doing. It's only 13 episodes, and we've released uh, four so far. Um, and it's called Haver, and it's a podcast. It's me and Peter Moran from the We Love to Watch show. Um, and we discuss the Ernest movies, the Jim oh, nice. Ernest movies. Uh, but yeah, I do that. You can find all my stuff at crustcelluloid.com. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited that I finally got to be on your show. I've been following it, and I'm very happy that you've been able to put it all together as you have. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think you are uh, all of uh, you are one of I think five or six followers. So we're we're getting our numbers, man. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is? I'm curious. What is the next uh, the next Van Damme film that you're going to be uh, putting out there? Do you do you already have one in the can? Uh, yeah, I have one in the can. Uh, my my friend Brandon Lede, who does a site called Swamp Flicks, he was on my double team episode. Uh, just recently, we recorded an episode on Knockoff, uh, the other uh, Hark Soy movie that he did with Van Damme, uh, with Rob Schneider in it. Uh, so we recorded that. I'm in the process of editing that now. That'll be out soon. Uh, and after that, I, I'm not really sure what's coming up next. I have a few people on the list to, to do things, but nothing solidified yet. So Knockoff will be the next episode out. Sweet, sweet. Well, you know, as always, I'm definitely game to uh, 
to talk Van Dam as well. So just let me That's, know. Like I said, I'll, I'll be hitting you up. Like you, you said on your show, you have your couple of guests that you know are going to be appearing quite often because they're always down to talk about it. You're definitely that for my show as well. Sweet. Well, hey, uh, Marcus, thank you so much for joining me, man. I really do appreciate it. To everyone out there listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And I'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast.